Ken Enlow, uh, you didn't wear your outfit from the trunk retreat yesterday. If you weren't there, ask him about it. And John Webb, where are you? <laughs> I just couldn't help but see you up here in, in your outfit from yesterday, though I'm very glad that, uh, that all of you didn't have to see it. But you've got to ask him about it because... And I, too, want to say thank you. It uh, just was so great, especially watching uh, all the kids yesterday. Uh, well worth all the efforts of those who, who gave the time. And I think uh, a lot of us put uh, forth uh, love and fun uh, for so many of our own folks and, and others that, that came in. Before I lead us in prayer and we dig into the text, uh, one word that... Uh, Neither session nor deacons or staff asked me to give, but just a word as uh, in this transition time, uh, soon coming to an end for us and for you, uh, just haven't said much about money this year, but I just want to say this to you, uh, as we think of looking at everything in the light of Christ, uh, this kind of season, the church is doing fine, uh, the elders uh, have planned well, there are reserves, but if you look at the cash flow for the fiscal year, that started, you know, in July, we're running behind. So no pressure. Uh, you know where you're at, and uh, I'm not pressuring you. I don't think God's pressuring you to do beyond what you can do. But if you've gotten behind, uh, if you are able to do a little bit extra as we prepare for the Gil Martins to come in and begin a new season, uh, this next six months would be a great time uh, to just give the transition a boost. Like I said, we're not in a panic. We're not falling apart. I'm just saying from experience that uh, this is one of those link times between things when uh, everybody's excited and looking at the future. Well, this is one way uh, uh, to step in and prepare for it and have uh, our hearts uh, looking at God's local church the way that he looks at it. So I will leave it at that. Before we open God's word, let's talk to him. Father, you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know that I have no business being up here, but your business. You know that I and my brothers and sisters uh, are so good at looking at things from our perspective that we can be proud of how well we know our sins and think we're spiritual because of that. But as we've sung in words that brothers and sisters have written, uh, we would delight in who you are and in the way you look at us. In spite of our sin, Christ coming because of our sin, we in these words from your word would see Jesus. And we would have his neighbor, our neighbors see him more clearly because we gather and pray and study. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as I read from Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. Jesus has already been placed, nailed to the cross, and the scripture continues. 
And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling to Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, take this Word. Drive it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. If you grabbed a bulletin and have the outline, uh, I've called this By His Light, I See Everything Else. Uh, Apart from Jesus' darkness, covers the earth, but seeing him, you see everything else. And an introductory heading that is an important phrase, all truth is God's truth. Calvin and others have taught that, which as Calvin intended it, meant that uh, while the Scripture is the ultimate truth of God, the clear Word of God, there are glimpses of God, Scripture tells us that, all over the place. And any place that you find real truth, it's God's truth. But we have to be careful with that phrase. Uh, All is an adjective. It's not all, but all truth. And it's all truth that is truly true is God's truth, or perhaps more clearly stated, only the truth that is God's truth is truly true. Some of you are old enough, like me, to have grown up on the incredible books, uh, still remarkable, of the late Francis Schaeffer, who coined the phrase, true truth, because already in the uh, mid-20th century, uh, this word truth was getting danced upon and uh, talked about in all kinds of different ways. But all truth is God's truth is a good reminder that in all men and women made in His image, in the whole physical creation, in other human philosophies, religions, we will find glimpses and insights into true truth. And we can and should see beauty in what God has made. Uh, We are to walk humbly before God and alongside our fellow human beings that no matter how broken and bent we all are at heart, uh, glimmers of God's truth, of His common grace, shine. We talk about that a lot as we talk about worship and as we talk about 
beauty and story and song and, and the ways that can point us to God. We never want to lose that sense of common grace, uh, but to try to find too much light in our darkness uh, is a desire that can be sourced in darkness in us instead of light, because everything apart from Jesus is ultimately tainted at heart with a spirit of rebellion, of self-involvement, of buying into the lies of the father of lies who guided Eve and then Adam astray. They're coming to believe that they could be wise without God. The powerful words uh, of our reading from the psalm, how much we need God's word, that we could be able to live without God, truly live, that we could become godlike apart from our Creator. And the fruit of this is described by Paul in Romans 1, and this understanding is not some uh, narrow view of Presbyterians or that uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and others steered the church on course, off course, but rather what Paul says in Romans 1 is just what it is, the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And it's hard because with the beauty that God has placed into us, there is also this darkness. I printed it on the outline. Uh, you can follow along as I read it aloud. For the wrath of God is, present tense, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them it to them. For what can be known about God is plain to them, God has shown it to them, for in His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I was one of the unusual ones. I had an incredible literature teacher in high school and fell in love with Shakespeare. I have a lot of friends who had not so good English teachers and didn't fall in love with Shakespeare. But if there was ever a writer who saw the beauty and grace and just the incredible reality of what God has made men and women into, but who saw the tragic flaws of the brokenness of our hearts and knew that the higher the creature, the greater and more dangerous the sin and the consequences. And so that is what leads us uh, to the darkness at Jesus on the cross. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'll say more about that in a moment, but I hope when you start hearing and seeing in Scripture those kind of phrases, you think about what was the first darkness when you go back to creation, when God put light upon things in the physical creation. And that is the time when Jesus cries out. Darkness, I put a list of verses uh, for you to look up later if you want to. I'm going to hit the high spots of some of them because... Uh, 
I hope you sense this in me now. I'd much rather you remember the scripture than my sermons. Uh, I love it when people tell me years after I've been somewhere, even they don't know where they heard it, but a text came alive to them in new ways. And sometimes God gives me the grace of remembering. That was at least partly my sermon, and I give thanks for that. But what I really give thanks for is that it's the Scripture. Isaiah 6, 2, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. That prophecy is fulfilled in the incarnation and the life of Jesus. Darkness, but then light. Amos 5.20, Is not the day of the Lord the Lord's coming that Israel longed for? Is not the day of the Lord? Amos says, Is it not darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness? Why? Because with the day of the Lord comes both judgment and Give thanks to God, deliverance. Psalm 36, 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's where we ultimately are without the grace of God in our, our lives. God's Word promises judgment in the day of the Lord. Uh, sometimes it takes 50 years, sometimes 100 years to see the fruit of our foolishness without guidance, without light. Everything we build is the product of unskilled labor. Some of you know the difficult story of the Shackleford expedition into the Arctic. Uh, don't have time to tell much of the story, but when they found some of the records uh, written of the journey, the thing they said was the hardest was not the cold, but the darkness. Places, I'm told, and at the South Pole, when it gets dark in May, when the sun goes down, it doesn't go, come up until late July. And sometimes it's so dark in the darkness that you not only can't see others, you can't see yourself. Think about that. Months that without artificial life, you can't see your hand. If you had a mirror, it does you no good because there's no light to have the mirror reflect on you what you need to see. And we foolish Americans, since John Dewey, the pragmatist, have been on this kick, and I've got more years of higher education than most of you. That means I'm slow, not that I'm necessarily so smart. But education is not the answer. One of the fascinating things, I gave a lecture at a spiritual emphasis week at Brown University, and, and I remember the look of some of the Brown students were just stunned when I told them that education has no content, the word to educate. It's all about process. The question is, in what and unto what, with what, do we educate? And we Americans are so pragmatic that we just think, well, if we just throw money at education, it will help. Well, it'll do things depending on the content. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation 
and to destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Amos 8, 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And that prophecy brings us to our text. The prophet says, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And so in verse 34 of Mark 15, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Amazingly, the darkness and judgment are here tied to Jesus' death, not to mine, which deserved the condemnation. Forsaken, the incarnate, eternal Word of God, eternally begotten, now incarnate with two natures, divine and human. The human nature cries out, teaching us to weep and yet to trust, even as the eternal Father, eternal Son and Spirit carry out judgment and rescue the repentant by Jesus' cross. I mean, there's, there's no way for us to really understand the sense of forsakenness in somehow in the mystery of the incarnation, the human nature of the God-man Jesus sensing the separation. I mean, none of us like to feel separated. I mean, our culture is real good at separating people right now. Have you noticed that? I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. Uh, I mean, what, and nobody's done this to me yet. You have three more Sundays today and two more uh, to do it. You can come up to me and say, David, you are an awful preacher. I never want to hear you preach again. And if you do that, then I give you permission. Uh, I'm going to do probably two things. One, I'm going to think to myself, uh, what in the world is wrong with you? I mean, even if I'm a lousy preacher, and sometimes I may well be, uh, at least I'm doing my best to preach the Word of God and not about me. But the second thing I'll do is I'll go home and dump all over myself. Because even that sense of separation and condemnation hurts, doesn't it? But what if I went home that day and Mary Nell said to me, and I told her about it, and she said, that's true. <laughs> and she said, no, you're not only a bad preacher, you're a bad man and a bad husband, and I never want to see you again. I think I'd only have one reaction to that. A sense of forsakenness that would cut so deep uh, that I don't even know how to think about it. And yet all of that doesn't come close to this cry, Eli or Eloi, the Aramaic for my God. My God, intimacy and yet forsakenness in one word. And the crowd was confused. Uh, Eli sounds like Eli, Yah. Elijah, Yah, Yahweh. 
Yahweh is my God. My God, my God, have you forsaken me? And the prophecies that Elijah was going to come. And some, in some of the Gospels, it sounds like some were saying, well, maybe Elijah will yet come, and he's crying out to Elijah, come get me. But the Scripture tells us that John the Baptist, in a sense, the second Elijah has already come. And what they do to him, they killed him. And Jesus is going to get killed too because he came for that. Jesus didn't cry out, my feet, my feet, my hands, my hands. He could have. But he turned to Scripture as well as to the agony of his soul and was teaching us intimacy as well as agony. And someone ran, verse 36, and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Bitter wine, most likely uh, to keep Jesus alert, either for Elijah to come or to prolong his agony and make him experiencing it. It's the cheap wine of the people, of the soldiers, but it was like smelling salts, kept him awake. And yet even there, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 69, verse 21, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The scripture tells us that Jesus' death is intentional and that it's under his and God's control even in his physical weakness. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Luke 23, 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now listen closely to these wonderful words from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, the temple, the holy place and the holy of holies where the footstool of God's feet with the cherubim and the chest with the things remembering Moses' day and ministry in it, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the presence of God, the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, not just a high priest, but the great priest, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, really washed with the blood of Jesus at the entrance to the temple, the holiest of place that only the high priest could go once a year on Yom Kippur. And when he went in there, he went with a rope tied around his ankles in case he dropped dead from God's judgment so that no one else had to die to go get him out. And they'd pull him out by the rope. That's how special the place was. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Judgment on the priests and temple, but a new and open way to the Father for all who will enter through Jesus. A new hope through the veil, Hebrews 6, 
the blood of Christ disclosed as the opening of the Holy of Holies. And this language is so significant. Mark 1 in verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, or more literally, he saw the heavens torn, and the Spirit of God came through the ripped-open heavens and came down to Jesus. There's a similar image, though not the same word, at the transfiguration of Jesus, when God broke down into the cloud, when James and John and Peter went up on the mountain with him, uh, and God came down through and spoke, this is my son, listen to him. But in Mark 1, it's at his baptism, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends. All of this ties back to Genesis, and I only have a moment or two to touch on this, but I want you to see the connection. I wish, uh, and, and I really don't want more weeks, I want Rick to get here. Uh, I could not be more excited. I, I came to leave, and that's what it's all about, but I would love to walk you through uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and show you how everything in Scripture is laid out there both by introduction and by difficulty and problem. And here we go back. God created the heavens and the earth, the totality of what can be seen. The heavens and the earth are a place where God will create male and female and all the creatures so He can continue in providence over them as king of the universe, provider and ruler. And if you think of Genesis, think of those two words. He's creator, and in His providence, He's the provider. And there are really both of those actions are at the heart of understanding Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's the creator. Everything is new and all is from him. He's the definer. But he creates spaces and puts things in them, and he's the one who then will provide, and he will even use the creatures, including us, that he's put in the spaces to continue carrying out some of his work. But Hebrew narrative, way back when I taught you from Jacob and Joseph's life the last fall a year ago, we saw God's providence. The Hebrew narrative is really sparse, and nowhere is it sparser than in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're always trying to read all kinds of modern things into the text. Have you noticed that? And I don't care whether you're a skeptic or whether you call yourself fundamental in every good sense of the word about the Scripture, we're always trying to add to it. Uh, the skeptics want the language to be modern uh, physics and biological mechanics, and then they say the Scripture is not true because it doesn't fit with that. And then those who hold to the Scriptures come in and say, well, given what they say, we've got to come up with the dome theory because it talks about the waters below uh, the heavens and the waters above the heavens, so there had to be a dome holding the waters up above the heavens. Who said there had to be a dome? Did God say that? No, God just described what was going on. We put in all these descriptions. Uh, I think you need to take the Scripture, you know, some of us remember, and I'm going to change the word, uh, the old KISS formula, K-I-S-S, uh, keep a simple simpleton. Um, I won't say the last word because I'm told that's not good for kids. But uh, the reality is it's really pretty obvious if you just look at the earth uh, and if you've ever been around mist and, and hills and, and mountains, uh, that you don't have to be a scientist to figure out that uh, the moisture on the ground rises up uh, and that clouds form and have to do with moisture. And when God opens the, door, the doors and the windows in the clouds, the water comes down. I mean, 
All you got to do is be with Moses in the wilderness and know that the text makes perfect sense if you just take it at its own sense and, and deal with the sparseness of the language that's telling you the essence. That doesn't answer all the questions. I can't answer all the questions, which surprise, surprise. Uh, Rick said it well when he was visiting with us. There's mystery, there's things that are beyond us. Uh, but the reality here is we have a tendency to, to distort the Scripture. We need to look at it in its own terms. And when we do, we see that the first temple was in the garden. And God broke down through the heavens and walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when Adam and Eve rebelled, guess what? They got kicked out of the garden, and instead of a curtain, there were cherubim with a flaming sword to keep them out. But now the return back into the temple and the very presence of God happens with the payment of Jesus' death bearing the wrath for our sin. And the curtain is ripped back open. And who ripped it? God ripped it. Only he can do it. Only he can open the door. And so we come to our final verse, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. People get tied in knots over this text uh, because uh, there's no definite article in the Greek, and it's the same argument uh, about that that the Jehovah's Witness use in John 1.1, don't have time to go into it. Uh, so some translations in the margin will say, a son of God. Uh, I think probably the best way to look at it, if you grapple with the Greek, is that uh, this centurion is simply saying, this man was son of God. No man dies like this. This kind of a man only comes from God. And isn't it fascinating that the first one to give witness to the reality of what Jesus do on, did on, on the cross was an executioner who had watched and caused a lot of men to die. And he saw in Jesus something that was a pointer to something so beyond. And I read some of the phrases earlier from the other Gospels. Go back and look at the other Gospels and all the things. For instance, when Jesus, with his arms spread out by force with the nails, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this Roman centurion who's watching all of this and who knows what authority is like says, I've never seen authority like this. This is of God. And like what happened to Paul when Stephen was stoned and we think the clothes were all thrown at Saul of Tarsus' feet as Stephen is stoned. And the text tells us that Jesus uh, was standing in heaven receiving him. It means he got up from his throne at the right hand of God and he greeted Stephen. And the text is sparse there, but we know that that was one of the things that God used in Saul of Tarsus' life to say, this is from God. This man has been with God and Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, North African brother, 4th and 5th century, wrote this about the crucifixion. He departed, it's on your outline, he departed by his own power. For he had not come by necessity, the incarnation, and so some marveled more at the power of his dying than at the power of his performing miracles. Augustine also wrote, those robbers crucified next to him, did they breathe their last when they wanted to? They were held fast by the chains of the flesh because they were not the creators of the flesh. 
Fastened by nails, they were tormented for a long time because they were not masters of their infirmity. But the Lord took on flesh in the virgin's womb when He wished it. He came forth to humanity when He wished it. He lived in history as long as He wished it. He departed from the flesh when He wished it. This is a sign of power, not of necessity. And under the second heading on the back of your outline, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and when I came to you brothers I came not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I don't know if Lewis had this text in mind or the psalm that talked about in your light I see light, but he was thinking biblically. That if you want life to make sense in God's terms, you've got to look at it through Jesus. And you've got to look at it through the cross. Because through the instrument of death that no Roman even citizen even wanted to name and talk about, through that cross and its power, we find out how bad we are and at the same time find out how much God loves us. I hope that's an offer that even your sin won't keep you, will keep you from refusing. That it's okay to find out how bad you are if you know somebody who can do something about it loves you. And that's what our closing song is all about. Stephen, team, come and lead us in the power of the cross.